You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Jonathan Capehart sits down with Washington Post correspondents and columnists to discuss the progress being made on the infrastructure bill and the crisis unfolding in Afghanistan. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to First Look, The Washington Post's one-stop shop for news and analysis. This was a big week, big week for the Senate as it passed its $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure plan and the $3.5 trillion budget resolution that'll end up being the reconciliation um, package. But moderates in the House are raising some red flags for Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who's insisted from the beginning that the two bills will move in tandem. Here to bring us up to speed on that and more and where things stand is Jackie Alemany, anchor of the Power Up newsletter at the Washington Post. Jackie, welcome back to First Look. Hey, good morning, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. All right, I put a lot out there. You've got all the info. Take us behind the scenes. Who are the Democrats who are who are raising the alarm? Yeah, that, what started as a triumphant week for President Biden as he took a victory lap when the bipartisan infrastructure bill got through the Senate finally um, has turned into a little bit of a mess and a preview of the, the messier fight that's to come after August recess. Um, when the House comes back, you had a handful of moderates, nine of them, a crucial number for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi who has a very narrow margin uh, of majority in the House, um, led by uh, Congressman Josh Gottheimer from New Jersey, along with Carolyn Bordeaux, Philomena Vela, uh, Henry Cuellar, Vincent Gonzalez, a bunch of Congress people who represent um, moderate districts uh, throughout the country, like Texas and Oregon and even in California, who have basically finally, for the first time, publicly threatened Nancy Pelosi to withhold their, their vote on the budget resolution, which is the framework for the $3.5 trillion infrastructure package that's going to be done through the reconciliation process, um, it withholds that vote in unless Nancy Pelosi holds the vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill first, which she's promised to do all along in order to appease progressives. Uh, the Progressive Caucus has said that they will boycott voting for the bipartisan infrastructure bill if that happens. Uh, so she's in a pretty challenging situation here. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, okay. So, because, wow, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. So Nancy Pelosi said from the beginning, we are not going to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill that comes out of the Senate unless the reconciliation package comes along with it. Um, to my mind, she was doing this to not placate progressives but to protect her entire caucus, because both of these votes would be tough votes. Am I not looking at this in, in, the, in the right way, at least from the speaker's perspective? Uh, I think you're right. I mean, also, if we're looking at the numbers here, you know, there are more than just progressives who want some of the Biden administration's priorities and really keep and central uh, parts of, of what Joe Biden campaigned on in the reconciliation bill that didn't make it into mm -hmm. the narrower trillion dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill. And if you're looking at the numbers, there are 96 members in the Congressional Progressive Caucus versus a handful of moderates, nine of them uh, who have, are putting up a fight about 
having a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill first. So yes, Nancy Pelosi is not going to be able to get uh, either of these done uh, unless these moderates stand down. Moderates, on the other hand, feel like they're not getting enough attention here, that they're the reason why Pelosi has even won the majority in the first place. They won in Trumpy, uh, Trumpier districts, uh, and a, a handful of them are up for challenging reelection fights heading into the 2022 midterms as well. And they're worried about things like inflation or the appearances of the federal government spending too much money. Um, so one more, one more on this. And that is, I just asked about Speaker Pelosi, but Senate Majority, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has his own challenges because, great, he got the bipartisan deal. Now this is the Democrats only reconciliation package, 50 plus the vice president's vote to get it over the finish line. But won't negotiations over the reconciliation package make the negotiations among Democrats, make the negotiations between the, the G20 of Democrats and Republicans, won't that make it look like child's play, holding the Democratic coalition together to get that $3.5 trillion reconciliation package through? Yeah, and it's really going to expose the fractures in the party uh, with the Mansion and Cinema Caucus. They have repeat. They voted in favor of getting this budgetary framework through to the House, but they have said that they do not support the $3.5 trillion price tag. So when it does eventually get sent back to the Senate from the House, that is going to be a whole other fight in and of itself. That's also going to be layered by other fights when it comes to voting rights, police reform, things that probably won't get done without eliminating the filibuster, both of which you know, both lawmakers have said they don't want to get rid of. So basically, the end of the year is going to be a serious test of whether Joe Biden can get some of the his most important priorities uh, done with a Democratic majority. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about some breaking news that's that's happening even as we speak. I woke up this morning um, to news that the advance of the Taliban in Afghanistan is happening a whole lot faster than folks anticipated. Yesterday's breaking news was that the United States is sending 3,000 um, additional military personnel to Kabul to um, uh, help prote uh, provide protection for the U.S. as folk personnel are, uh, I was going to say, spirited out. But as they leave Afghanistan, um, has the Taliban's success in, in these last few days taken the Biden administration by surprise? I'm, I'm not sure it's necessarily taken the administration by surprise. They, I think, probably, and we have some reporting that indicates they did see this coming and they were mm -hmm. notified of this in various briefings. Um, but that still has not, uh, I think they weren't prepared necessarily for the the blowback and for how swiftly uh, this was going to happen. Um, they've also said, U.S. officials have said that the latest developments are not going to derail the current withdrawal strategy. Um, although the these need for reinforcements, as you noted, these 3,000 troops that are um, whisking away American personnel from Kabul because of uh, the Taliban's, um, you know, uh, takeovers, really takeover of, of much of the country right now, although they haven't yet taken over um, Kabul, uh, you know, has made them, I think, reassess these unforeseen consequences. Um, but there is going to be a briefing on the Hill today. Uh, 
Biden has said that there isn't the need for thousands of armed U.S. troops to guarantee um, there would but there would be no need uh, if the U.S. were simply handing off the responsibility to the U.S. armed security forces. But this is a, a, a very tenuous situation and a politically perilous situation that Biden wanted to avoid from an optics perspective, um, mm -hmm. which a lot of people like our David Ignatius and, and um, a lot of experts on Afghanistan who believe that this could have been avoided if Biden had implemented a slower and more targeted drawback uh, from the country. And in fact, Jackie, to your point about the, the um, politics of all this, just as we were coming on air, so I don't even know if, if you have even seen this, but Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of, of Kentucky, put out a statement, and here's what it says in part, here's what should happen now. President Biden should immediately commit to providing more support to Afghan forces, starting with close air support beyond August 31st. Without it, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban may celebrate the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks by burning down our embassy in Kabul. Um, pretty stark statement there. But real quickly, in the minute that we have left, just, I don't know if you've had a chance to see that statement or even had a chance to find out what the administration says about it. But just given what you know of the administration, how do you think that's going to be received? I mean, this is the line that I think Republicans have been reiterating for quite some time now. Uh, they have been increasingly critical of Biden's move and, and haven't and have especially criticized him for the timeline of it. But look, uh, Biden's hands were tied with the deal that was struck under the Trump administration um, between right. the Taliban and the Afghan government. Uh, it could have been, you know, navigated uh, in a different way. Yes, that's mm -hmm. what Republicans are arguing right now. It remains to be seen whether or not Biden's actually going to change course here. Right. Um, right. They are very reticent from a public perspective to indicate right now that uh, they are going to, um, you know, reverse course. This is something mm -hmm. that Biden yeah. promised on the campaign trail. Americans right. have wanted their troops out of Afghanistan, um, at least from, you know, a, a, uh, in countless surveys over the years, uh, and right. he's intent on doing so. All right, Jackie Alamani, we are out of time. Thank you, as always, for coming to First Look. And I'm going to pick up the conversation on Afghanistan with our opinionated panel in a minute. Jackie Alamani, anchor of the Power Up newsletter here at The Washington Post, thanks again for coming. Have a great weekend. Now, let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists Donna Edwards and Hugh Hewitt. Donna, Hugh, both welcome back to First Look. All right, let's pick up uh, where we left off with Jackie. And in, in particular, since this is the, the latest of the latest breaking news, the statement from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, where he said once again, his advice to the president that the president should immediately commit to providing more support to Afghan forces, starting with close air support beyond August 31st. Without it, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban may celebrate the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks by burning down our embassy in Kabul. Uh, Donna, this is as messy and as chaotic as many had feared, and yet the president says he still stands by his decision to leave. Was there any way this withdrawal wouldn't be so chaotic. 
Well, as messy as it is, uh, Jonathan, unfortunately, I think that the situation that we're facing today is one that would have been faced 10 years ago, 15 years ago, had we withdrawn. I think the surprise is um, the speed with which the Taliban has, you know, has moved. You know, I looked at reporting uh, showing that uh, down in Kandahar, um, that that has now been uh, overrun. That was a, a, a holding place every spring for Taliban fighting, and the U.S. had a strong presence there. I mean, I visited Afghanistan, I think, four times when I was a member of Congress, and what really troubles me, of course, is what we see now, and that is the plight of women and girls um, and the Afghan people. But I don't know that this would have been any different had it had the withdrawal taken place a decade ago. And Hugh, your your view on one, the, the chaotic situation in Afghanistan, two, um, uh, the minority leader's uh, proposal or advice to the president. Well, I don't think it's chaotic. I don't think it's messy. It's catastrophic. Tens of thousands of people will lose their lives in the next couple of weeks, including those who worked with us, interpreters that Donna mentioned, women are going back into the burqa. It is a catastrophe that could have been averted. The Trump plan of 2,500 American soldiers, 5,000 NATO soldiers would have worked. We are sending thousands of troops back in today because we're down to three cities. Kandahar has fallen. Helmand province has fallen. Kabul, Mazar al-Sheikh, and Jalalabad are the last three cities where the Afghan government functions. They threaten to be overwhelmed by the end of the weekend. Joe Biden said in July this would not be a replay of Saigon 1975. That's exactly what it is, a replay of 1975. The Biden bug out is a stain on his presidency. They said it wouldn't happen. Tony Blinken promised it would not happen in June before the Congress. Joe Biden said it wouldn't happen in July. It has happened. It is happening. And thousands and thousands of our allies will die. And American prestige will not recover from this for decades. No one will trust us because of the Biden bug out. Donna, your reaction, Donna, your to, reaction that. to that? Well, I, I don't think it's so much that. I mean, the fact is that the American people actually support this withdrawal. Now, um, what is happening there? I think it's it's surprising that so much, so many resources have gone into training and equipping uh, Afghan forces, and in many instances, it's reported that they are just laying down their arms, uh, not even putting up a fight against the Taliban. I mean, the Afghan people have to want the control of their country um, more than the Americans do or any foreign um, foreign presence there. And, you know, they have to be willing to uh, to fight for it. I, I think it's it's a sad moment. And um, and there is no, you know, predictable good outcome for the United States, whether we were doing what we're doing now or we had done it um, years ago. And, um, you know, I, I just think that for the Biden administration, the calculation is that it is better to withdraw now and enable at least whatever the, um, the force is around Kabul uh, to try to hold itself to hold at least part of a government. There's no good outcome here. Yeah, Hugh, and to, to Donna's point, um, in her first answer, she said whether this happened five years ago, 10 years ago, no matter when this decision would have been made, that this is what we would have been, we, what we would have been seeing. 
Uh, I called it chaotic. You call it catastrophic, and I have no reason to argue with you on that. But my question to you is, to another point that Donna said, this is something the American people have wanted for years. Are the American people wrong for wanting to get the United States out of Afghanistan? The American people did not want troops dying there. No troop had died there, I believe, in the last six months. There's been an occasional casualty over the last two years. A de minimis force of 2,500 American and 5,000 NATO troops holding Bagram would have been successful in allowing the Kabul government to consolidate with the Northern Element Alliance that remain and have secured a negotiated exit that uh, the embassy and, and the ambassador in uh, Doha was working towards. It was President Biden's decision to name August 31st as the exit date and the rapid pullout from Bagram. We're sending troops, by the way, not to Bagram. We're sending troops to defend the Kabul airport so that yeah. our civilians are not massacred. We are begging, and this is quite embarrassing, as Liz Cheney said on my radio show yesterday, our State Department is begging the Taliban not to kill our diplomats when they take over Kabul in the coming days. This is Saigon 1975. Joe Biden, who Robert Gates said has not been right about a single major foreign policy issue in 30 years, continues to bat a thousand in getting everything wrong. Trump would not have done this. Trump had a withdrawal strategy. It would have worked. Jonathan Swan reported accurately the details of that strategy yesterday. I confirmed them last night with former senior national security officials in the Trump administration. Congress is aghast. Everyone who understands what's about to happen to the American people is aghast. And it's on Joe Biden's mark, on his watch, that this collapse occurred. Donna, I, I, I'll uh, get your reaction to Hugh um, pinning that uh, huge blame on President Biden in a second. But Hugh, since you mentioned um, uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, you did interview her. What other, what other things did she say about Afghanistan and the administration's um, uh, actions toward it in your interview? A transcript is posted. I urge people to read it. She agrees that we could have held on to friendly areas of Kabul and the north and possibly Kandahar with de minimis effort. She believes it's catastrophic. She also believes the budget passed by the Sanders Socialists in the Senate and the now Socialist Democratic Party is catastrophic for American defense spending everywhere in the world. And she will be voting with the Republicans to try and persuade five Democrats to stop the disarmament of America because the consequences of this of that disarmament are exactly what we see in Kabul. All right, Donna, um, Sanders socialists in the Senate. Uh, uh, okay, Hugh, um, nice going. But Donna, your, your reaction to all of that. Well, you know, first of all, the I mean, the budget that's been passed by uh, by Democrats is a strong Democratic budget. Democrats are in control of the uh, Senate. And when it moves to the House, it will be a strong Democratic um, budget and reconciliation package that will be signed into law by a Democratic president because Democrats hold the government. Um, there is nothing socialist about it. I mean, what is, what is wrong with providing for child care, dealing with the climate crisis, looking at long-term uh, care and health care in this country, investing in infrastructure? These are priorities that the American people uh, support. And um, it's not a surprise that a conservative Liz Cheney would vote against um, these Democratic priorities. She is, after all, still a Republican. Um, and and I, th I think that the important thing here is that 
Um, the Biden agenda is going to move through, even as messy as it is, um, through the uh, through the Congress, and it will represent priorities that are at the top of the list for the American people. And Donna, I'm going to stick with you on this uh, and focus on infrastructure. And in part of the conversation I had with Jackie Alemany um, on this issue, I was focusing in on the two Democratic leaders, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Um, put the tussle um, between the moderates and progressives within, within the Democratic Party uh, into perspective. Can Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer hold their respective caucuses together to get the two, the two packages out of the Senate, into the House, voted out of the House, and, uh, and then reconciled? <laughs> There's so many steps. <laughs> How do they hold it together to get these bills to the president's desk? for a signature? Well, I think first of all, we have to understand that the infrastructure package that passed out of the, the Senate was only one step in, the, in a four-step process. Uh, and now we move to, the, uh, move to the House. We also got the budget outline um, uh, package uh, that passed the Senate as well. I Look, I worked closely with Nancy Pelosi. I served on her leadership team. I know how she puts these things together. And even if you hear a group of moderates, um, you didn't have all the moderates signing on to that, uh, to that letter. If you had a progressive letter, you would not have all the progressives signed on uh, to those letters. What Pelosi will do is she will meet in small individual groups. She will meet one-on-one -on -one with members. Uh, the president and, and members of the White House team will be making phone calls to those moderates and to progressives. And I expect that when it's all said and done, Nancy Pelosi in the House is going to have the votes that she needs. And there will be huge pressure, even on the two Senate, you know, a couple of Senate moderates, huge pressure on them uh, to pass the president's agenda. It is really hard as a member of Congress, whether you're in the House or the Senate, to have your president stand in front of you and say, I want you to pass this agenda so that we can move forward together. This is my agenda. It's hard to say no to that. And I suspect that, you know, the rest of us are going to be looking at the sausage making, but inside, it's going to move through the process. And we will think it's messy from the outside, but it will be very calculated from the inside. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we've got um, too many topics and not enough time. So I'm going to try to move through this real fast, shifting gears to, to coronavirus. Um, things are looking bad in several hotspots around the country. You've got hospitals overrun in Florida, even Children's Hospital in Texas um, is overwhelmed with pediatric COVID patients. And the Republican governors in these states have banned mask mandates, Hugh. Um, there's a story, I read so many papers, I can't remember which front page I saw it on. I think it was on our front page. But the headline was, COVID, the, the, the Republican Party, the GOP is becoming the face of COVID. My question to you is, why are Republican governors playing politics with a public health emergency like COVID? Oh, they're not. They're doing exactly what the people of those states want. People do not want masks on K through three. There is no scientific evidence to support that. Dr. Fauci on my show on Monday admitted that. 
They are afraid that the Delta variant might affect children more adversely, but based on fear as opposed to science, they are taking radically unpopular steps. Those are not being accepted in Texas, Florida, and other states. They're being mandated in California and other places. There's a divide in America about who gets to decide whether or not children wears masks. And there's dysfunction at the CDC over the publication of clear and easy to read data. The average seven day death toll in America is about 370 people dying per day over the last seven days, which is similar to March of 2020. Nowhere near the 3,700 deaths a day that came at the height of the pandemic in January. In fact, those who aren't unvaccinated are at great risk. People need to get vaccinated. They need to remove themselves from that risk category. But the politicization of the mask issue has obscured the mission of the government, which is to get people masked. And this is another terrible failure by the CDC in messaging. I spent all morning on their website trying to get those and sleuth out those very few statistics. The average seven-day death toll for children under the age of four is zero, according to the CDC. And the alarmism about children and COVID is irresponsible. It's scaring people. What we need is a CDC that goes back to actually presenting data and media that does not try to scare people. If they get vaccinated, they are safe. Um, Donna, uh, I would argue that it is irresponsible for the unvaccinated to um, continue to resist the pleas of, uh, of so many people to get vaccinated. And Hugh is right. There is a divide in America, but it's between the vaccinated and unvaccinated. And unfortunately, the spike in coronavirus cases are, in, are uh, among the unvaccinated and in states where um, the governors are not doing everything they possibly can to protect their citizens. In the minute that we, or a few minutes that we have left, um, your um, closing remarks on this issue. Donna. Well, I would only say that um, I think you can't really look at the seven-day average across the United States because in places, as you point out, where people are vaccinated, where there are high vaccination rates, those seven-day averages are very, very low. But if you go to states like Texas and, and Florida and you know other states with these red state governors who are refusing mass mandates, where the messaging around um, not being vaccinated has permeated um, mostly the Republican Party. Uh, what you see is people who are dying and getting very, very sick because they're unvaccinated. Um, and so I would agree. I think that there is has been confusion around uh, around messaging, but there's no confusion around the simple message of get your vaccine so that you can protect mm -hmm. yourself from coronavirus. That is not confusing at all. And yet people are ignoring that message. And with that, we're going to have to leave it there. Donna Edwards, Hugh Hewitt, as always, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Thank you. Thank you. Go to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about the programming in store for next week. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you for watching The Washington Post's First Look. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.